LL's new one-stop shop, booking a vacation to Israel has never been easier. It's simple. The easy-to-use system allows you to book your flight to Israel and customize your travel plans with LL's travel partners in the tourist industry and realize huge savings in the process. And now, for Arutsheva listeners only, order a flight and hotel in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv through the Arutsheva site and get a free cell phone with 60 minutes to use absolutely free. Click on the banner on IsraelNationalRadio.com. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. Folks, it's really good to have you here again this week. We do appreciate you coming back and visiting us here on the Noahide Nation show. And as you recall, last week we were speaking with our honored co-host, Mr. Doug Taylor, on the significance and importance of asking questions. And it is an amazing topic when you get right down to it and realize that over the years, uh, over our lifetime, we probably have really not asked as many questions as we probably should have. But... That's not to worry. I mean, we can now ask a lot more to hopefully make up for that which we missed early on in life. But I think today we're going to kind of expand on that, and and Doug's going to take us down the road of Maimonides and using Maimonides' approach to the question of what's true, which in and of itself is an excellent question. So, Doug, come on in here and help us out here. Sort this out. Hey, Ray, how are you doing? I'm okay. You doing all right? I'm doing great, thanks. Good to have you back with us, and again, a heartfelt thanks for sitting in for Prescott. I know he appreciates it, and, and I appreciate it uh, as well. So please, help us out here with Maimonides, because last week's show was great without Maimonides. I can only assume that this week is going to be that much better with him. So <laughs> let's see if we can work our way through this. Okay, well, it's great to be here, and thanks again for having me. To kind of set us up for that, we were talking last time about the importance of asking questions, and one of the key questions that we get down to is really the question of how do we know what's true. Uh, This came really home to me years ago in the town in which I live. Uh, There was a pastor of a church, and he wrote an article in the local newspaper expressing his concern about the spread of homosexuality, his concerns about what that might mean for his kids growing up in society, uh, and so forth. And from his religious viewpoint, homosexuality was wrong, and he made that point clear in his article. Well, as you can imagine, there was a firestorm of letters to that editor of the newspaper in protest, And what was sad was that the letters, most of them, were little more than just venting of emotions. I mean, they raked the pastor over the coals, they called him names, uh, and and in general, they just stirred up a lot of dust. Uh, There was one case where a writer did potentially raise a legitimate argument against the pastor's position, but even that writer still included some emotional name-calling in his letter. So I watched this exchange in in the newspaper and it went on for a while and I finally wrote a letter in uh, which the editor did publish 
pointing out the uselessness of the discussion. And the reason that it was useless, which I pointed out, was that in general, there are two kinds of people. There are those who think there is a creator of the universe who gave us rules to live by, and then there are those who don't. And the ones who do think there is a creator of the universe, and I'm going to make a general statement here, I know there are lots of variations, but generally, I would say those people believe that the rules set down by the creator that they hold exists, that those rules forbid homosexuality. And for those who don't think there's a creator of the universe, they will probably find no problem with homosexuality. So to argue the issue of homosexuality is a pointless venture because each side of the argument is starting from different premises. The discussion about homosexuality won't go anywhere unless the people involved in that discussion get together and agree on a common foundation first. Because the whole issue of homosexuality is a downstream conclusion from some previously accepted points of view. When you study geometry uh, in school, one of the axioms that you begin with is the idea that two parallel lines in a plane never intersect. Now, you can't prove this, but it is accepted as a given in Euclidean geometry. And from that, you can derive all kinds of other things. And a whole system, as we have it, of geometry. But there right. is also non-Euclidean geometry that doesn't necessarily accept the axiom that two parallel lines in a plane never intersect. And you can derive a bunch of things in that system as well. Now, if someone were to take one of the proofs that was a downstream conclusion from one of those systems and argue against a corresponding idea from the other system, the argument would be completely pointless. Because again, the two sides are arguing from different premises. They're starting from a different place. So in order to deal with that, you'd have to back way up the idea chain and discuss the differences in the underlying assumptions first. And once you dealt with that, then you could have a discussion that might be fruitful about the downstream conclusion. Well, you know, I think you'd also have to establish of whether or not you could even get there. As in the case of those who believe there is a God, a creator, and those who do not. I can see that that is going to be more than an hour long discussion. I mean, you're talking about radically changing the thought process of another individual just to have the debate on homosexuality. So, yeah, I, you know, I guess for me, I would say, I, do I even want to waste the time trying to achieve that only to try and talk about something else? I, you know, it, you get to a point where, boy, time time is of value, and I just don't have time for this. Yeah, <laughs> I I completely agree, and then that's interestingly why so many religious discussions end up in political or in emotional snowball fights, uh, where one person is saying, "Yeah, but it's this way because of this source," and somebody else says, "No, it's not. You're totally out of line," and People get wound up. This happens in political circles, too, you know, when people right, start debating right. politics and so forth. And so what we have to do if we want to go into that stuff is we have to back way up, particularly in, the, I guess, what we call the religious realm, and, and discuss this foundational question that you raised at the beginning 
uh, of this show, which is how do we know what's true? In my experience, this question is almost universally overlooked. And yet, knowing a clear answer to the question is fundamental to our knowledge of virtually anything, uh, whether it's medicine or whether it's technology or whether it's geology or whether it's whether there's a creator of the universe, we have to first establish, how do I know what's true? Do I know it's true because I read it in a book? Uh, do I know something's true because someone older than me said so? Or because it's posted on the Internet? Or because a so-called religious leader said so? I mean, this is a really important question that's worth thinking about and wrestling with on a personal basis for a while. Uh, because it's, sorry, it's so sorry. fundamental. Are you saying, Doug, that then the best way to go about this is to set up parameters and guidelines which would then tell you what is true and what is not true? Yes. Because okay. Now, wouldn't that also be derived from possibly the environment that you were raised in? For example, if you were raised in a religious family versus a non-religious family, aren't the parameters for both going to be completely different, even with the, the topic being exactly the same, religion? I would suggest that it doesn't need to be, and it should Because the, the establishing the truth of an idea, we have to have a framework for that before we can really get to the questions like, is there a creator, and has he... Uh, has he communicated with us in some way, and so on and so forth. I, right, okay. I have, to, I have to start with some framework for establishing how do I know what's true. Would it be true if my parents taught me that, and is that sufficient? Or I would submit that for children being raised, you know, we, we get raised with what our parents tell us, but at some point in our lives, we have a responsibility to step back and ask, okay, What's the basis on which I uh, operate my life? Uh, when a kid is five years old and he doesn't run out on the street, uh, he might say, well, because my mommy told me not to. Right. And, and we'd accept that from a five-year-old. We right. would have a real hard time accepting that from a 25-year-old. Right. Uh, we'd say, you better have a better reason than that. Yeah. <laughs> and and so we have an obligation, I think, as adults to stop and question everything that we were taught as kids, not to say it was wrong, but to say, is this valid? Do I accept this? Does this make sense? Uh, can I ask all the questions around that and prove it for myself that, yes, this is the way I should operate with regard to this thing or that environment or whatever that might be. So that then gets us back to a question of, well, when I ask those questions, how will I know what's true about something? And Maimonides, who I think most of your listeners would know is one of the great Jewish scholars, he suggested that there are three ways that you can know what's true. And two of them are uh, what we rely on probably the most today, actively. Uh, and the third one we'll, we'll get to in a second. But the first is direct observation or experience. So if I walk out my front door and a blue car drives by, I can say, yeah, a blue car drove by because I saw it. 
I personally experienced it. I directly observed it. Right. And we use our five senses to learn and understand what's true. Uh, I saw it. I heard it. I tasted it. I touched it. I smelled it. Uh, little kid learns his stove is hot because he tries it once and then he figures out, <laughs> you know, when that little thing is red there, that's not such a good place to put my hand. Uh, and that's very direct observation and experience. And virtually any knowledge of the physical world starts with those five senses. Someone, somewhere, experienced something directly. Now, we've got to point out that there are some limitations here. One of the important ones is our senses can be fooled. Uh, movie makers do it all the time. Stage right. magicians do it all the time. Right. Uh, the, the art of special effects in movies has become an amazingly complex discipline. Uh, anybody now with Photoshop can, you know, modify a photograph uh, so that you can't take hardly anything you see as necessarily being real. Uh, and, and so we have to be on the lookout for that <clears throat> and, you know, very carefully, uh, very carefully test that. The other limitation is that I can't directly observe or experience everything. Uh, I wasn't alive during World War II, yet I hold that it occurred. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that. So there are, there are lots of things that, uh, we will accept that we haven't directly observed. Our whole knowledge of history, uh, is based that way. And that gets us around to the second way that we can know what's true, which is reasoning, such as a logical deduction or a logical proof or a preponderance of evidence. So let's start with, with logical deductions or proofs. And that, of course, requires some knowledge of logic. Uh, interestingly, uh, it's my understanding that in the days of the ancients, uh, logic was considered a prerequisite to the study of any other subject matter. Uh, because how could you know whether you were reaching a, a correct conclusion without a knowledge of logic and deduction? Yet, ironically, today, Logic is an elective course in college. And that could give you pause to ask a question along the lines of, gee, how would I feel being diagnosed with a serious disease or a serious medical condition by a doctor who has never been taught how to reach a proper conclusion? <laughs> That's why. That's why they say you need a second opinion. Always. Yeah, that's that is true. Uh, in uh, Nassim Talib, in his book "Fooled by Randomness," uh, gives an example of an experiment that was done on how to read or interpret medical test results uh, and what kind of probabilities to assign given the uh, effectiveness ratio of the test and so forth. And he commented that in a, apparently an experiment that was done, four out of five doctors got it wrong. Um, and as I understand his example, not by a little bit, but by a huge amount. Hmm. So there are some, uh, there's some real issues to be involved or issues to, uh, to deal with in making sure that people know how to reach a proper conclusion from, uh, some given data. So, as an example, logic 
would dictate that a statement can't be simultaneously true and not true. So if A equals B, then it isn't true that A is not equal to B. A practical example of that might be if I'm on, in Los Angeles at a given moment in time, then I can't be in, say, Venice at the same moment. So then there's the issue of a preponderance of evidence. So consider this example. Suppose you're walking down the street and a stranger walks up to you and says, you know, I was abducted by aliens uh, earlier today and they took me up in their spaceship and I really, I had a wonderful lunch of grilled cheese sandwiches and Elvis Presley was there. Um, <laughs> and, and I just got beamed down and you're the first guy that I've, I've come across that I can tell this story to. Now, would we believe him? I mean, of course not. I yeah. believe he's a nut. Yeah. I mean, we weren't there. We have no direct experience. I suppose it's possible, but then again, probably not. Now, if we consider the Civil War, well, all of us didn't experience that either on a direct basis, yet we believe that it happened. So what's the difference between the two? This is where the important concept of the preponderance of evidence comes into play. Thousands of people experienced the Civil War. Tons of books have been written about the Civil War. Movies uh, have been made about it. There is so much direct observational evidence by those who experienced it that we can reasonably rely on their observations and their direct experience. It's possible, and, and it certainly happens, that one or two people can make something up or lie about it. But the larger the group that is sort of in the know, the harder it becomes to keep the lie a secret. Conspiracies become more difficult, and at some point virtually impossible, the more people are involved. So if someone were to tell me that a bank was robbed in my town earlier that day, I might or might not believe it, depending on the person and maybe some other factors. But if a thousand people report that there was a bank robbery in my town earlier today, because they personally watched it happen from their office buildings, not because they read it on the Internet, then I can be fairly certain that something resembling a bank robbery occurred. Because you're not going to get that many people involved in a conspiracy to fool everybody else that uh, a bank robbery happened. Well, and that's why I'm firmly convinced that the fellow that you use as an example did not meet Elvis that day. <laughs> yep, I'm inclined to agree. And he, he probably didn't meet Bruce Lee either. I mean, <laughs> so this is how we get most of history. I mean, we learn it because there, are, there is a preponderance of evidence. And so we can be very, fairly certain that a particular event happened. In other kinds of situations where maybe we have the account of only one person or a tiny handful of people, then the accuracy of that account becomes more open to question. So big events that lots of people see and, and that aren't so complex that they can't understand what's happening, those things you know, we can have solid 
confidence in. But if we came across, you know, one thing that said one person over here saw this event, you know, 500 years ago, eh, maybe yes, maybe no, then it becomes much more open to question. And I'll suggest that much of the knowledge that we have in life comes from a preponderance of evidence based on observations of other people. So, for example, if some doctor gives us a particular drug, we generally trust that it's going to work. We didn't observe the clinical trials, but we assume that there is a preponderance of evidence that the trials were conducted and that they yielded positive results and the doctor wouldn't give me that medication unless he had good evidence that it was going to do what it was supposed to do. So that's the, the second of Maimonides' key ways in how we know what's true. The first one is direct observation or experience. Uh, the second is reasoning, logical deductions, proofs, preponderance of evidence. The third way that we know what's true is prophecy from a known prophet. To really delve into that, we would have to, first of all, establish that prophecy actually exists. And then we'd have to establish some criteria by which we can know that someone is a bona fide prophet. Because if we were to be able to establish to our intellectual satisfaction that prophecy does exist and that there were criteria that we could rely on to know that someone was a bona fide prophet, then we can include that on our list of ways we would know something uh, is true. Uh, but for our purposes, we generally rely on the first two. Well, it's funny you should mention that because oh, it was a few weeks ago we did a, an interview with uh, Jacob Scharf and Andy Overall regarding Maimonides. Thankfully, Jacob is going to be—he's going to be one of our guest co-hosts as well. And one of the things that he wants to talk about is how do we identify a prophet? So it really kind of coincides with what you're talking about in terms of that third avenue, because certainly I have yet to meet a prophet, though sometimes you really wonder about these guys who can pick all the football games and everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't, don't, don't believe for a moment that I've actually met a, a prophet, and it's going to be interesting when uh, Jacob comes on air and takes on the, the co-host role that uh, we find out what uh, Maimonides believed is a prophet, how we determine whether a prophet is in fact a prophet, mm. and which would then take us to your answers of whether or not how you determine whether what he is saying is true, with the number one thing being, well, he's a prophet. And if we can establish the parameters for that, we could probably use number three an awful lot. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Maybe not yet. Maybe a little bit further down the road. But anyway, Doug, uh, let's uh, go ahead and take our break right here. This is a, a great topic. I can't wait to get back so we can dive back into it. So, folks, stick around with us. We will see you on the other side. The 
Yishai Fleischer Show. We need to be positive about what we're doing. We need to see the big picture, and we need to get excited about where we are going. The Yishai Fleischer Show. I have to learn We are brothers and sisters. The Yishai Fleischer Show. That's the Yishai Fleischer Show, live every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and archived weekly on IsraelNationalRadio.com. Israel National Radio announces an all-new time for our honored host emeritus, Yishai Fleischer. Yishai and Friends now airs from 9 to 10 p.m. Zion time in the land of Israel on Mondays and Thursdays. That's 9 to 10 p.m. Zion on Monday and Thursday. Or 2 to 3 p.m. Foggy Bottom Time on America's East Coast. Tune in and get your soul tuned up on Israel National Radio. Shalom and welcome back, folks. We appreciate you sticking around with us here on the Noahide Nation show. I can uh, pretty much guarantee that the second half is going to be—it's going to be a bang-up second half. Let, let me tell you what uh, Doug and I were talking during the break, and this is just uh, just a fabulous subject that I have to believe that a lot of folks have never really considered. And I'm so appreciative that Doug has been able to come on for a couple of shows and not just co-host, but also enlighten us on such an important subject. And just as a reminder, I want to share with you that Doug is one of our instructors on the Noahide Nation's website in the Academy of Shem and is currently teaching a class on Proverbs. And that is on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you get a chance, I highly recommend getting in there and, and listening to Doug Taylor teach on Proverbs. When you talk about life itself, I don't think it gets any better than Proverbs. So <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's great that way. Now, Doug, I, I don't want to throw a wrench into what you've got going here, but you're talking about something in the last segment about direct observation, reasoning, and a, a preponderance of the evidence. You know, citing examples of one person saw it. Well, I may or may not believe it, but probably not likely. But if a thousand people saw it, then I'm inclined to believe that it happened, such as the Civil War. Now, my question, Doug, (laughs) I don't want to make your head hurt now. There are few of us Noahides, as you well know. Uh, and when I say few, I mean we're talking, you know, tens of thousands. I mean, I, I don't know what the, the true number is. But when we talk about Islam and Christianity, there are literally billions. Now, when it comes to something like that, how then do we as Noahides determine if being a Noahide is indeed uh, accurate or is, you know, reading Torah and, and believing in Torah, is that the way to go? Because the New Testament certainly has a, a quite a few more votes in its favor when you talk about the number of Christians and when you talk about Islam, the, the Quran. So how do we, you know, take something like that? Because obviously <laughs> Noahides are in the minority here, as are the Jews. So, you know, we have a bit of a dilemma here, I think. Well, it's a good question, Ray. There are a couple of ways you could come at that. One is that you could take the position that says 
you know, it doesn't really matter what everybody else is doing. The question is, what is clear to me and what is clear to my mind uh, and my understanding? Am I going to base my life on my mind and what I can clearly see? If I say no, I'm going to ignore my own thinking, but I'm going to believe what that religious leader over there happens to say then I have essentially sort of given away my life in trust to that person. Okay. Uh, and I would submit that, generally speaking, we would not do that in other arenas in life. Uh, we were talking about brain surgery a little right. earlier on the show. And right. if I have to go get brain surgery, I'm going to ask around and find out, okay, Who's got credentials? Who's good? Who is known to have the knowledge and the skill in this area? In fact, I'd prefer the best one in the country and maybe the world if I can do that before I'm going to let them operate on my head because my life is at stake. I'm not going to just accept, well, you know, somebody said the guy down the street does that in his garage and, and you can get a good rate on it or uh, you know, something like that. I'm, I'm going to want the very best because there's so much at stake. And in that sense, the person is, they are using their intellect because they are inquiring to find out what's going to be the best solution or the best situation. So there are countless examples in history that show that even though a majority of people think something, that doesn't make it true. The number of people who believe an idea is no indication of truth. You have to work it out from basic principles and a basic foundation before you can really move. And so that would get us back to Maimonides uh, and his his three principles. So right, that, that, okay. That's one way to come at this. Well, that makes sense because you're, you're actually, in talking about this, that you're now engulfing reasoning along with the idea of numbers that may have seen or witnessed something because reasoning has to play a role in this that, that in, in virtually everything, wouldn't it? Yes, it, it okay. absolutely does. And Particularly when we talk about Torah itself because, well, I don't know about you, but I wasn't there when you know, Hashem gave the Torah to Mount Sinai. <laughs> I don't believe you were, were you? Nope, I, I was not. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and it's a very good point because to, to that end, another approach that a person could take, and let, let's say a person says, well, you know, I just trust the Bible, and I'm not going to try to work it all out myself, but that's what I trust and that's what I'm going on. That, that's an approach, uh, and you are a sense turning over your future to trust in uh, a particular book, uh, but let's say that a person goes down that road. Uh, yeah, the New Testament says certain things. The Old Testament says certain things. And if a person is going to say, okay, that's my foundation of life, then I would want to go in and start asking questions like, so what are you going to do about certain contradictions between what you're finding in the Old Testament and what you're finding in the New Testament? Because there are contradictions and I think many of your leaders are familiar with those. And if a person simply wants to shut their mind out and say, well, I don't know, but I just don't want to have to mess with that. Um, well, okay, that's an approach. <laughs> right. 
but that doesn't necessarily lead you to a correct conclusion any more than going to some random people and saying, you know, I need brain surgery and I just don't want to have to worry about it, so would you take care of everything for me? So, yes, we, we have to be involved. It also brings up a point that you may have been alluding to, which is the whole issue about conspiracies versus the direct observation of lots and lots of people. Uh, virtually every religious approach that I am aware of involves one or a very tiny handful of people who got some kind of supposed revelation and are now have built a religious approach around that revelation, except one, and that's Torah Judaism. And right. the difference there is that when the Jewish people went to Mount Sinai, uh, there were 600,000 people there, uh, plus 600,000 men, plus when you add then the women and children, you're looking at a number somewhere in excess of 2 million. And they all heard God's voice, according to the account in the Torah. Now, and and God, you know, gave them the law and... Uh, if you read in it, you know, in Deuteronomy, it says, don't turn from the right or to the left, you know, and if anybody tries to do that to you, don't pay any attention to them. Well, that's pretty clear. So if I were relying on this book, I would have to say, gosh, if that's direct observ or direct message from the creator that this is what I'm supposed to do, then anybody later that comes along and tells me something to do that's different, I shouldn't pay any attention to that. Now, we could also then raise the question, well, why should I believe that account, you know, uh, at Sinai? And there's a very interesting logical proof of that that goes like this. If we look at the account at Mount Sinai where two-plus million people uh, were purported to have heard God's voice, then we can logically say either that account is true or it's not. Okay, One or the other has to be the case. And if we can prove that one of those is impossible, then we have proven the other. Okay? Is that so? Uh, right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So either A or B, and it's got to be one of those. So if I can show that A is impossible, then it has to be B. So if we accept the side that says that that event did occur, then we're done. Okay. So now let's go down the road that says, no, that event didn't occur. Well, if it did not occur, then that event had to be introduced into the historic uh, accounts at some point in history, because we have it now, so right. it had to be introduced at some point. And I will submit that there are really only two practical possibilities that it was either introduced at the time that it was purported to have occurred or at some time later than that. Now, if it had been introduced at the time it was purported to have occurred, I will submit that that is impossible because what you would have to do is go tell two million people, by the way, don't forget that yesterday you all heard God's voice. <laughs> and they're all going to nod and say, uh-huh, when they didn't. 
That would be like telling, you know, most of the population of Seattle that a giant spaceship came down and uh, landed uh, in Elliott Bay yesterday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and you all personally were sitting around and saw it happen. People are just going to look at you like you've got two heads. I mean, they're not right. going to accept that. There's right. no possible way. Um, so I'll submit that that proves that introducing that story at the time it occurred is impossible. So now the other possibility is that it was introduced at some point in history after that. Well, if you talk about you know situations where supposedly there was a revelation to one or two people, then okay, you might get some people to believe that you know a hundred years ago so and so heard this from uh, from God and and here's his revelation and we're starting a new religion because of that. But to come along to a group of people the Jewish people, and introduce into their history and say, you know, umpteen years ago, and you can fill in whatever number of years you want in umpteen, umpteen years ago, all your ancestors gathered around Mount Sinai and heard God's voice. Now, they're going to look at you and say, yeah, well, if that's true, how come my parents never told me anything about it and their grandparents never told them anything about it and there's no tradition of people telling each other about this huge, giant event with two million people? I mean, you you can't just come along and suddenly invent something that happened to a whole group of people who have a long history of tradition and of sharing information down through their, their lineage and say, this all happened to you. Because there would be no other evidence for it. And again, they would look at you like, come on, what are you trying to do? So I'll submit that it would be impossible to introduce a lie uh, or false phenomenon of that magnitude at a later point in history to a group to whom it purportedly happened to their ancestors. So that indicates that it would have been impossible to falsely introduce that uh, story into the history, again, because you've got two million people involved, and therefore the only logical deduction is that it must have occurred uh, because there's no logical way for it not to have. So that gets us to then accepting, okay, we have a Torah at Mount Sinai, given to us, now what does it say, what are its rules uh, what, what does it indicate I'm supposed to do and if it clearly indicates, which it does this is the program don't mess with it then anything that comes after that in history, I would have to reject. So that's another approach where I could take that Bible and use it to guide me as to what's the real truth here by asking questions and going through logical deduction or proof. Now, that brings us to, I guess, what could be considered a touchy subject, which is, what about belief? Yeah, touchy subject. Thus, yes. my, my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> so let's ask the question, what is belief? In a generic way. And one of my teachers introduced me to the idea that belief is a conviction that I have concerning something about which I am ignorant 
Why am I ignorant about it? Because if I knew it through direct observation or experience or through reasoning, then I wouldn't need to believe. So, for example, does anyone ask other people, do you believe in yogurt? <laughs> of course not. I mean, you know, yogurt, it's that creamy white stuff. Comes in small containers at the store, variety of fruit flavors. Yeah, I've had it. In fact, you know, maybe I had some this morning. It wouldn't mean anything to say that you believe in yogurt. By contrast, we know about yogurt. We've experienced yogurt. We know it sits there in the supermarket store case. And the only reason that a person might need to believe in it is if they had no knowledge of it, in which case they'd be ignorant about it. Somebody might say, well, that's all great and handy for something that I can see and touch, but what about something that I can't see or touch? And so I would offer up, okay, let's talk about electricity. What is electricity? Uh, my best understanding is that it is a flow of electrons. Which of us has actually seen the flow of electrons through the wire? Yet, we don't say that we believe in electricity. No, because we've worked with the effects of electricity long enough and studied it long enough to know that it actually exists. Again, the only reason I would need belief around it would be if I were ignorant about it. That is, I had no knowledge of it. So I will submit to you that belief in and of itself means nothing. There are people who believe all kinds of things. Does that make them true? It does, and does it make them not true? Neither one. A belief doesn't tell me anything. And interestingly, it virtually ends productive discussion. This point was really brought home to me in a very practical situation years ago when as a consulting actuary, I was working on behalf of an organization that was considering whether to give a cost of living adjustment to uh, the pension benefits that the company's pension plan was paying to its retired employees. This was back in the days when we had really rampant inflation and people on fixed incomes, which is what people on retirement pensions were getting, were having their purchasing power just devastated because the price of everything was going up. Now, the company was not under any legal obligation to have to raise pension benefits. They just asked me and some other people to look into the question of whether we thought they should do this on their own, just grant this increase. So we studied the issue and from a bunch of different directions, and we finally determined that there was no business reason to grant the cost of living increase, but that it was really a judgment call on the part of the senior management of the company. And the decision went all the way up to the board of directors. And all of the directors agreed not to give the increase, except one of them. And his position was, yes, I hear all the facts, but I believe we have an obligation to these people. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, in telling me this later, my manager very sagely said to me, as soon as someone says, yes, I hear all the facts, but I believe such and such, all debate stops. Why? Because you cannot debate a belief. There's just nowhere to go. 
and this is a very critical point. If six people are standing around in all uh, a car that is completely yellow, and five of them agree that the car is yellow, but the sixth person says, yes, I can see that the car is yellow and that you all agree, but I believe the car is red. What can you say? How, do you, uh, how can you argue with a position like that? There's no way to do it. All discussion stops because there's no way to continue. So when we run up against someone who says, I believe this, if I can show them facts and deductions and rationale that suggests otherwise, and they say, yeah, I hear you, but I still believe X, then there's really nowhere that I can go because there's, there's no debating, there's no basis to even hold the discussion, which again is an interesting reason why religious arguments often end up in just uh, what I term emotional snowball fights. <laughs> so what happened to the pensioners? Uh, they did not get the increase in that case. They did not. <laughs> the, the other directors prevailed uh, in that particular situation. That's so interesting about the word belief. Because when I was a Christian, I was also called a believer. Yes. <laughs> and suddenly it's like hit me like, uh-oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what prompted all the questions. <laughs> well, that's, I think that is what ends up prompting a lot of questions. You know, it gets down to, well, what is the basis for my belief? And am I comfortable with that? Right. Um, you know, and it, it's essentially, in some uh, ways, searching for what is the proof of my belief. And if I can't find something that satisfies me, then I've got an open question in my mind. And that question's going to niggle at me. And I'm going to start looking for sources and other ways that I can get an answer to that question, which, again, I think is how a number of people end up moving into the, uh, the Torah world, uh, where questions are welcomed uh, and we can find answers that, that are satisfying and make sense to us. Well, yeah, in fact, in Judaism, they encourage the questions because, as I said, I, gosh, I don't remember if it was earlier this show or in the last show, but they look at you kind of funny, like maybe you're not learning anything if you don't have any questions. It's like there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, they, Of course, so they, they take issue with that because that's a, a reflection upon them. <laughs> so the student's only as good as the teacher is. Yep. So they, if you're not asking questions, the teacher's not too good. <laughs> they they definitely want to hear those questions. There's a story, I believe, or a comment in the Talmud where one of the, one of the sages said, I learned from something uh, along the lines of, I learned from my teachers, but I learned the most from my students. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. That's a, a great way to close this show out. Well, Doug, it's been fabulous having you with us and, and sitting in for Prescott. And boy, if we get the opportunity, I'd sure like to have you back to you know do some more. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that or what your schedule's like, but we'll be in touch. I'd love to and, do it, Ray. Thanks. Okay. Well, uh, listen, folks, it was great having you with us for this past hour. We appreciate you sticking around, and we will see you next week. And in the meantime, my friends, always, always look to the heavens for your help from Hashem, because I guarantee you, He is always looking out for you. 
Take care. Shavuot Tov. Best wishes, everyone. Thanks. JJ here in the USA. We, I just called to wish you blessed holidays and a happy new year. And we're standing with you. So we serve the God, the only God of Israel. Don't give up any more land. God gave you that land. Take care of it and do what you need to do. All the blessings of the Holy One of Israel upon you. The only true God from Grandma JJ in Gallatin, Tennessee. Love you all. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com.